Welcome to this Kessler Foundation podcast. The Foundation is a global leader in rehabilitation research that seeks to improve cognition, mobility, and long-term outcomes for individuals with disabilities by testing new interventions and gathering data that may be used in treatment to restore function and help people living with disabilities improve quality of life. In addition, the Foundation Center for Grant Making leads the nation in funding programs that expand employment opportunities for people with disabilities in New Jersey and the nation. In this episode, we are talking with Elaine Katz. Katz is the Senior Vice President of Grants and Communications. She spoke with Rob Gerth, the Foundation's Communications Director. Let's start with a basic question. The Center for Grant Making, tell me what your role is and what the role of the Center for Grant Making is in the Kessler Foundation. So the Center for Grant Making at Kessler Foundation over the past 13 years has funded close to $45 million, um, both in New Jersey and nationally through our three grants programs. And what we do is support new business ventures, job training, job creation, job placement. Um, But more importantly, um, we're the leading funder of innovative approaches that we hope will lead to change um, by creating real economic opportunity for people with disabilities. Um, And it's really important for us to do this. When we started 18 years ago, um, there really um, weren't any foundation. Well, 18 years ago, we weren't doing grant making. But when we started um, our actual grant making program about 13 years ago, there wasn't any foundations that focus exclusively on employment for individuals with disabilities. Um, Through the years, that's really changed. So we've seen the landscape for foundations um, see that that is important, that people with disabilities can contribute to the economy and do need some assistance when it comes to specifically um, getting them entering the job market and becoming um, great employees in competitive um, integrated employment. And how important This is a pretty broad question, but how important is it for people living with a disability to have the opportunity to to work? Well, if you look at the um, 56 million Americans who probably identify as having um, some sort of a disability, only 20% are really working. Um, And that actually is the largest minority that crosses almost every demographic. And in fact, the Office of Disability Employment Policy in Washington has said that that's actually the third largest market segment in the U.S. after we have Hispanics and African Americans. So when you think about of that group, probably about 15.1 million uh, Americans are of working age. It's really important because currently they're, they want to work. We've seen that through our Kessler 2015 employment study where they're striving to work. And at the same time, um, those who are working are often underemployed. Um, so they're not working in jobs really up to their level, or they're unemployed because um, they have not been able to um, enter the job market for a whole host of reasons. So talk to me then, you mentioned uh, about innovative approaches. So what what constitutes to you an, an innovative approach? And, and has that changed over the years? So what our grant making is in our large signature grants, which are those grants that are over $100,000 um, over two years, um, the idea is to find a way that will increase the participation rates of people with disabilities. So when we talk about innovation, it's we're not talking necessarily about something new. What we're talking about is ways to use perhaps what's out there and combine and braid them and twist them in a new way. Um, and typically we're looking for those ideas that, as you say, as we say, can move the needle 
unemployment and really make a difference. And oftentimes that may be uh, a new form of collaboration. It may be a um, economies of scale, taking an idea that worked in one community and, and do it nationally. Um, there's lots of ways to look at innovation, and I think that's really um, the difficult point in our grant makings that many organizations that apply to us really don't have an idea of how to use creativity and imagination um, and not do the same old, same old when it comes to employment for individuals with disabilities. Do you have any success stories that you've, uh, organizations you've funded that have turned out really well over the years? So I, I think when we talk about our successes, it's really the work of our grantees um, that we've looked at that makes us successful. Um, in 2017, um, we put, put together a white paper that was the Employment Practices of Individuals with Disabilities. And what we did in that is look at um, 20 different projects that were all evaluated by the Heldrick Center for Workforce Investment. Um, and what that center did, and we have hired them, is to um, evaluate each project as it happened. So we put together a report of all their information um, and tried to pick out some best practices and lessons learned. Um, and through that, a lot of our projects were um, highlighted for a number of different reasons. And what were some of the best practices? So I'd say the, you know, there, there's three or four different ways we can look at best practices. I mean, some of what we looked at was actually um, what could be organizational elements of success? So when you're putting together a grant-making process and you're putting together a program um, that looks at employment for individual disabilities, you have really two components. You have the organization itself um, and how does that work and really carry out a program, and then you have the program. So what we found when we looked at all our different projects together is that there are really three components that um, really worked um, as elements of success. So when you're looking on the organizational side, you have things like diverse funding, um, how, how diverse is their funding, are they having different source of the funding, um, their leadership and staff, uh, what kind of leadership, what are they looking at, how are they evaluating the project, do they have experience carrying out the project, and then lastly, collaborative, collaborative relationships and partnerships. Who are they working with to carry through this project? And when you have all those elements together in an organization, um, of course you have to have the program elements together, but we found you have a higher rate of success. When we're looking at the um, best practices side and what kinds of things you need in an organization, we came up with five different um, elements from our lessons learned and all our practices. So um, when we move forward and talk about our, our program success, and we can talk about some examples in a minute, um, really there's there's different components. So we see that there has to be a component about changing attitudes about people with disabilities. So when you look at employment, um, is somebody who doesn't have a progressive attitude or willing to give a person with disability a chance, obviously, um, is not going to be hiring people with disabilities. So it's uh, changing attitudes of um, employment, both within um, an organization, a business that may be hiring, and also um, the the personal um, how, how a person with disability sees themselves because sometimes they're so beaten down and so challenged in getting employment that they really don't have faith in themselves. Uh, another one is person-centered approach, is that looking what a person really wants to do, not just placing them a job because that happens to be the easiest job available. Um, community partnerships, working with within the community 
to find uh, in, uh, to find organizations and supports that may be needed to help a person as they seek employment, and what we call wraparound services. So those may be the transportation, housing, um, other um, other aspects that really are important to getting and keeping a job. Um, it could be chicken and egg, for example. You know, if somebody doesn't have housing, are they really going to be able to get a job if it's not permanent housing? So really, we found that it's almost, you know, it takes a village sometimes to keep somebody um, to seek and gain employment. And lastly, you have to be able to document all those four elements. So, I mean, you may, if you carry through any kind of a project and then you can't document it, what have you really gained or learned? Um, you can't see the challenges. You can't see um, the good lessons learned that came out of it. And in this day and age, do organizations or businesses still need to adjust their attitude? Or is it, is it easier for people uh, with disabilities to get employed because organizations are more enlightened? Uh, or, or is it just as difficult as ever? If you're asking about um, employing talent with disabilities or actually inclusion and diversity, um, companies right now, because the economy is almost at full employment, are very open to hiring populations that they really never considered before, um, whether those are individuals who are uh, formerly incarcerated, people with disabilities, and maybe other uh, underserved populations. Um, whether or not it's true inclusion and diversity is probably up for grabs. <laughs> Those are probably the first people to lose their jobs if the economy um, goes south, so to speak. Um, there's a book by uh, Frances West, who's the former IBM's uh, first accessibility officer. And what she talks about is authentic inclusion. And what that means is that really for an organization to be successful successful in their inclusion and diversity um aspects, they really need to look at an individual's ability across the whole organization for everyone to look at a holistic approach in that company to see what are the talents that everybody can add um, to the organization. And it's because of those differences um, that really causes almost that innovation to happen because of the different thinking and the way the confluence of the thinking can come together and really push that um, organization forward. So you have your principles, your purpose, and your profit can all be um, aligned. So it really helps. It's not charity necessarily when you look at um, including people with disabilities and including them. It's really bringing everybody's experiences and perspectives together to influence change and growth. And how about the nonprofits that are, uh, that they're mission is to help people with disabilities get employment. Are they adjusting to sort of this new thinking as far as employing people with disabilities or are they struggling with it? Well, if you look about the if you look at the history of employing people with disabilities when you started um, at the turn of the century, there were more workshop settings, so there are specialized settings for individuals with disabilities to work together to learn a skill that kind of morphed into what they called sheltered employment or segregated employment where people with disabilities were being paid piecework and typically under uh, um, uh, below minimum wage that kind of morphs into a 60s and um, and 50 late 50s and 60s hire the handicap so there's always been initiatives about individuals with disabilities being hired um, what's really different today is that people are recognized more of the talents of the individual the capability of individuals with disabilities and the right that everybody in an individual has to work and 
live within the community like everybody else. Um, work is a really important part of your identity. So if you think about um, how it is when you meet somebody at a party, the first thing they usually ask after what's your name is what do you do? Um, and most people's answer is, you know, I worked or I'm retired. Um, if, if you don't have an answer to that question, you really lose a chunk of society. That's a good point. Now, you mentioned transportation earlier. I assume that that's one of the big blockades to getting people living with disabilities uh, jobs. Is it, is it as big as I think it is? And then what are some of the other uh, obstacles? Transportation is a huge barrier for individuals with disabilities. Um, in fact, the federal government Office of Disability Employment Policies has had different calls and um, opportunities to present some opinions on that. Um, with, the, with the coming of the new transportation, new accessibility with Uber and Lyft and other kinds of services, um, there are some opportunities there for individuals with disabilities um, people who may have visual impairments get some rides door-to-door where before the traditional uh, ride services offered through public transportations have uh, drop-off and pick-up spots a lot of times and not necessarily door-to-door. They don't cross communities. Um, They're not always on time. They provide a window. Until recently, some of them uh, didn't have any online uh, ability to pay, online reservation system. It's a very antiquated way of providing transportation. In fact, some individuals have even proposed that maybe if you're on a benefit like Social Security income and Social Security disabilities, maybe transportation should be included. So when you wrap that into an issue of employment, how do people get to jobs? So oftentimes people with disabilities who don't have a mode of transportation will turn down a job opportunity simply in fact they think it's too difficult and obstacle to overcome. And in fact, when we did our 2015 survey of Americans with disabilities um, a number of years ago, we found that actually transportation was one of the barriers that could be overcome with family and friends. Um, it's not an easy, it requires some creative thinking, but oftentimes um, we have found that individuals have found, um, are able to gain rides through Uh, the workplace. So, for example, if they work at a warehouse uh, and there are other people who may be on their route at the same shift, sometimes there are rides. But it's a huge barrier. Um, It's often seen as an insurmountable barrier. Uh, I'm not sure the, again, it's one of those issues where do you make sure you have transportation to get to a job or do you find a job and then find transportation? So I guess technology is going to play a role in this whether it's something to do with self-driving cars or any other kind of technology. Um, Can you give us examples of any technology that's come along that's made a difference in people getting employment? So autonomous self-driving vehicles are something that's really been of interest to um, the whole disability field. There's been a number of white papers that are produced by um, different organizations and foundations on that. Um, I think personally we're still a long way from that becoming a reality. Um, technology mostly has been used to help people accommodate on the on the work site. So in other words, if somebody is um, needing some sort of an assistant to do their job well, then they've been able to ask the company to provide some sort of equipment to help them. So if you think about somebody who isn't disabled, 
Um, most of what accommodations we see when you think about what you needed on the job, um, the hot thing used to be standing desks. So everybody would ask for a standing desk. Now the hot new thing is asking for a second uh, computer screen. So you walk around an office and you see people with standing desks and two computer screens. <laughs> so, you know, when it comes to technology, the, the most common um, uh, technology you may see is something like screen readers to help people um, who are visually impaired read uh, their the computers read for them or other technology. But the the issue is not necessarily the technology that's needed to jo- to do the job because it's there. Um, the two questions that typically come up are. Um, will employers pay for it? With most of the time, they will, but a lot of times, individuals, especially placement, uh, individual disabilities, and those who place them in employment, think employers will not necessarily provide it. But the other thing is, in order to get that kind of an accommodation, as we call it, you have to identify as somebody with a disability, and that person may, if it's not uh, a self-evident disability, in other words, a person is not presenting in a wheelchair or use a walker or a cane or is visually impaired, um, they may not want to identify as being having a disability because they may think, and in reality, there may be uh, discrimination in the workplace. Hmm. And uh, let's talk about another, um, what I'll ask you, is it a subset, which are veterans living with disabilities? Is that a special subset that Kessler is particularly interested in, or and, and is there a special like, is it, is, is it a subset that people, that dis, veterans living with disabilities need special attention? Our Kessler Foundation grant making has funded a number of programs through the years with um, four veterans who have disabilities who have been returning um, from some of the recent wars. Um, we started funding National Organization of Disabilities many years ago uh, with a national project that they had, which included those wraparound services, which was one of the first times that um, for veterans especially, there was a look at beyond the, the job itself at housing and some of the supports they needed. Uh, we've also fund some local organizations. Um, uh, Jevs in Philadelphia had a project years ago, which was Jewish Vocational Services in both Philadelphia and New Jersey, which worked to hire uh, individuals who've been um, uh, who are w- wounded warriors uh, into employment. And we've also worked locally with the groups like the GI Go Fund in New Jersey. What's really unique about veterans, um, and we saw it especially in our Veteran Service Network project with Easter Seals in Washington, D.C., uh, that has started a job board for individuals with uh, disabilities um, who are veterans and also close family members, is that in order to be successful, projects with veterans um, really had to have people with veteran experience involved. Um, it needed somebody who was familiar with the veteran environment, especially with service ratings and disability service ratings, um, to be able to get and maximize um, the current system benefits that veterans were entitled to, and also um, get whatever else they needed and integrate it with other benefits that they may be eligible for. Um, This past year, we started a new program with veterans um, that we're funding through Cornell University, and it's a project in upstate New York and um, Missouri. And what it is is looking at uh, veterans who are uh, veterans with disabilities who are in uh, two-year and four-year schools becoming placed in apprenticeships Um, Apprenticeships, as you may know, is uh, a very big initiative of the current government and has been for a while in labor in the United States. And it's a way of uh, entry into a profession that gives paid experience 
and then eventually uh, accreditation to a particular field. Are there any other, as we're talking about successes, is, are there any other successes, whether for veterans or anything else, that you want to point out? And, and I would assume a big part of what you would define as a success would be something that can be replicated. An important part of our grant-making program is, try, especially in our larger programs, is trying to look for projects that do have some potential. I mean, the whole idea behind innovation is a way to try something new and then hopefully to scale it. So we had a project a number of years ago that was putting faith to work. It was a very small project in Minnesota. Um, It actually started in New Jersey, and then um, it it ended up having to be moved to Minnesota because the project lead moved. Um, And that project worked within the local community, um, trying to have faith-based congregations connect so lay leaders would connect with their congregants for employment. Um, That ended up being a much larger, being morphed into a much larger grant that was in uh, Texas and Tennessee as well as Minnesota. And that grant looked at 28 different congregations and part of the grant put together a manual of how to do it yourself. So one of the things that made an innovative process is that a project, it was a low-cost way of getting the community involved in learning about people with disabilities and their likes and their dislikes and also how to place them in employment but it also provided a way of identifying congregants within their own faith-based communities that required um, perhaps some extra help some services Um, many of the congregations didn't even recognize that there were individuals with disabilities within their congregations that could use some assistance. Uh, It also led to things like making um, services more accessible, making buildings more accessible. Um, So it was a uh, ramp-up, scale-up, if you will, of success. What we did find, though, um, and the downside of that project and some of the challenges is because it was a lay leadership-driven project um, and required volunteers, if um, the faith-based community lost a good volunteer or, on the flip side, they didn't find enough congregants to keep that flow going to the different committees they set up, um, it simply would fall apart. So it really was a project that worked very well but required a lot of nurturing on the part of um, those that carried out the project. Well, let's talk about some some down and dirty, nitty gritty things. Like to help people when they're applying for a grant, um, what are what are some well, of the, I think before the biggest you start with mistakes? Let's talk about some of the some of the do things they <laughs> okay, need to do. That's fair. So, you know, um, I I think you know what we're looking at is just the traditional kinds of grant makings in one aspect. So, on one side, you know, you're looking for a simple, direct idea of the concept. You're hoping they'll draft it and rewrite it. Um, clearly state their goals, develop their budgets, so that everything looks like it, you know, is in order. Um, At the same time, um, before I get to what I call the magical thinking of grantees, um, (laughs) we want to make sure that, you know, it's really something that's going to pop. And, um, you know, if I had to list the qualities of standout proposals, I would say it's we're looking at, you know, the energy of the proposal. As you're reading it, does it have enthusiasm? Does it have passion? Um, as a reader, do I get inspired or whoever else, the um, the staff leader, um, staff who read the proposals in our organization, do they get inspired and excited? You know, do we see the expertise comes through with the people who are writing it? Do they really understand the problem they're looking to solve? Do they seem committed to it, whether 
that may be a willingness uh, to invest in the project, um, to use some unrestricted money of their own, uh, extra time. Uh, is it a clear? Is it clear? Is it clear what they want to do? You wouldn't believe how many proposals you can read through, and you could read through twenty pages and still not know what they want to do. Um, collaboration. You know, who are they collaborating with? What are, What are they looking at um, for partners? Are they unusual partners? Have they worked together before? Um, what's the benefit and value that's going to come out of this grant? Uh, is it comprehensive enough? Is it, and it's, you know, do proposals are proposals, so you never know if they're truly going to be effective. But do you really think from reading it that this project could be carried out? So, so those are kind of the things that we look for when you read through the proposal. I would say most grantees, uh, most grant makers rather, um, are looking that from their grantees. The downside is what I call the magical thinking of a grant application. <laughs> um, and those are really the don'ts. And, and part of the magical thinking is um, getting a phone call where you're talking to a person who wants some feedback. Uh, the first thing they say is they're a great fit for you according to your website. And they, they know that you're going to fund them because you're a great fit. Well, I don't know who, where's, where's that coming from? So that's kind of the part of the magical thinking. Um, a lot of times we'll get phone calls even that um, they haven't read our website. So, you know, if you're going to call and connect finally with a grant maker, you have to be sure that you're going to read their website. Uh, you know their priorities. You reviewed a list of some of their prior grants. And you actually have some questions that you're going to ask besides um, one or two questions. Um, I, I would also say that rejecting good advice happens a lot. So, for example, I've gotten phone calls where... Uh, people want to talk about a presenting idea. And, well, you know, we'll, at Kessler Foundation, we're pretty accessible. So we will talk to people about lots of ideas. Um, we can't tell them if we'll fund them, but we can tell them if we're definitely not interested in it so they won't waste their time and apply. So sometimes they'll share an idea with us. We'll say maybe we're probably not interested in this. This is not a priority of the foundation or trustee, even though they, magical thinking, think it's a great fit. <laughs> um, and then lo and behold, they'll give us all this pushback, like why they should, why we should be funding it. And they'll be very defensive. And it's like, wait a minute, you're asking us for, we're trying to save you time and energy here and you're pushing back on it. So again, uh, you know, it, uh, I understand where they're coming from. I've been on the side of writing grants, but at the same time, you know, when we're providing you feedback to try to save you time, energy, and money, um, as far as, you know, you're spending uh, money, good money of the organization, lots of time writing, you really need to listen to the grant maker. Um, the other thing I think is, is another magical thinking of a grantee is that you especially of somebody who, who is a grant writer, oftentimes they'll put in one grant or two grants and think that's it, they're done. So really one application is, is one application, and that does not mean you're going to be getting funding from anybody because getting funding is really a numbers game. So the more applications that your organization fills out and applies for, uh, the better the odds that you're going to have of getting it. So all in all, um, you know, the, that's the kind of advice that we give to people who call us. And again, if anybody's listening, you feel free. Once you've read our website, once you've seen our deadlines, <laughs> which uh, are usually posted each year in December, you're always free to call or send us an email. Um, and hopefully, you know, we can answer your questions. One more thing before we wrap up. You had mentioned some uh, employment statistics early on, and I would be remiss if I didn't get you to talk a little bit about Entide uh, and, and tell the folks what that is and... and uh, 
why we invest in that? So we produce, the uh, Kessler Foundation with the University of New Hampshire produces a report, which is the National Trends in Disability Employment. Um, and that's a monthly report that comes out following the release of the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers. Um, our last one came out this past October. So it's always a, a month behind the month we're in. And what that looks at is the participation rates of people with disabilities, how many people are in the workforce, how many people may be looking for jobs. Um, And it also compares uh, year over year, because we're not seasonally adjusted yet, the numbers for individuals with disabilities compared to people without disabilities. So we saw this past month that the numbers were flat. Um, The past few years has been kind of an up cycle, a down cycle. It's been all which ways, depending on how the economy is trending. Um, but really, it, when we come down to it, about 30% of people with disabilities are, are working compared to about 74% of people without disabilities. Excellent. I have like one last question for you. Um, do you feel like the success your grantees have had, does it, does it leave you hopeful for people living with disabilities who want to work? That's really an interesting question um, because I think funding employment as a grantor and even the federal government is kind of like trying to end poverty, find a solution for health care, uh, and you know, find a solution for housing. It's one of those big bucket items that is, you know, requires a lot of money, a lot of energy, and a lot of people are not on the same page. I would say for us, um, we feel we've made really a substantive improvement locally in New Jersey. So we do a lot of funding through our um, local community employment grants, which are grants of $50,000 for one year, as well as uh, we do fund um, the arts and um, sports and recreation through a special initiative grants that we have locally, which are grants over uh, under $20,000. So locally, we found we started grant making. Organizations really weren't talking to each other um, as far as the community of those who are employment funders. And I think over the years, we've brought people together through uh, our grantee symposium, which are programs. Uh, We've really tried to network within the community. And I think um, our, our local nonprofits have done a good job of bringing the issue of employment of people with disabilities really to uh, uh, locally and around the state. We look at our national initiative um, and our national funding, although we're really considered a small funding, um, our, our some of our funding may seem large at $45 million, but really uh, yearly we're about um, two and a quarter million. Um, I, I think our success really has been that other funders have seen the importance of entering that marketplace and, and looking at the priority of helping people with disabilities become employed. We're seeing more workforce funders um, who are large mainstream funders, such as the Ford Foundation and others, J.P. Morgan Chase, and others really become um, interested in exploring this further and supporting the work of others in the field. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today, Elaine. It's been my pleasure. For more information about Kessler Foundation, go to KesslerFoundation.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.